Welcome to Eyeballs number nine. And there's five of us in the room here today recording. There's myself, Lynn Hester, and on my left. Jerry Gilbert. Hi, I'm Katie Rogers. And I'm Warren Wilson. The fifth person is Gail, who's assisting us with the production of this podcast. We're going to kick off today by talking about touch tours. I think we ought to explain a little bit about what we mean by a touch tour for those people who may not know. Touch tours are usually organised by museums, sometimes they're before a theatre performance or an exhibition, something like that. And it gives people with visual impairment an opportunity to explore by touch items in the exhibition, props that may be used in the theatre performance, museum items, just the chance to touch and explore to find out what they're like. Not necessarily just by touch, sometimes using other senses like smell and hearing. Before Christmas, Jerry and I went to the Museum of Cambridge for a tactile tour and the education officer there gave a bit of a background behind the museum and how it came into being. My name's Melanie Morgan, which is W-O-R-G-A-N, and I'm the learning officer at the Museum of Cambridge. It used to be called the Cambridge and County Folk Museum, and it opened in 1936 after a long life as an inn here in Cambridge, and the inn was licensed in 1646. That was open for quite a long time before it became a museum. And the reason the museum came into being is because a group of people in the city decided to get together and put on an exhibition of bygones. So these are items and ideas about Cambridge life, customs and workplaces, trades, things that people were starting to lose, things about their lifestyle that they no longer had, particularly Victorian items which people still had in their homes but perhaps didn't understand. And the museum took a leap of faith after this exhibition was such a success and it opened in 1936. And at the opening, Cyril Fox from the city of Cambridge said, people here know more about Pampua than Pampersford. So it was about high time we had a museum dedicated to Cambridge life. We then moved on to the actual tour and we began in the bar. If you'd like okay, to sort of gather round, um, roughly in the bar, where oh, it's oh, the bar space. Yeah, this is our bar, you can have a good smell. Oh. In the museum for this Christmas, we're celebrating a time travel this Christmas. So every room that we go into will have a slightly different theme. This is the Tudor um, room, and just next to you we've got the Snug, which is going to be our Cromwellian band Christmas, which is why we've got a decoration. So would you like to know a little bit more about the bar? So as I said, the bar closed in 1934, that was the last day, but it had been licensed in 1646 as the White Horse Inn, so it was standing here for a very, very long time, and people would know it as one of the stopping places on their route to London. So quite often people would stay here in the bar on their way to one of the trade fairs in London. So it's quite a good stopping point. We also have quite a few stories in the collection about the 
less reputable people transiting oh, affairs <laughs> to do a little bit of pickpocketing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, some of the some of the archives do suggest that we had a few thievy types staying mm-hmm. in the museum. <laughs> so in the bar here. So to my right, we've got the original servery that was still here when the museum opened. And if you go and have a little feel in a second, what you'll feel is the window of the bar with a small serving hatch. It's closed because inside is all the lovely uh, jugs and the bottles with the Cambridge Brewery details on it. Now on the window, and you'll just about be able to feel the nine panes of glass with the struts in between, the previous landlord and landlady have etched their names on the glass. So they've actually graffitied Someone has also, one of the porters at the university, has graffitied on some information about a royal visit to the museum which happened in 1937 when Queen Mary came to visit. So he's also etched that on. To my 12 o'clock, just behind Claire, is the bar Inglenook fireplace, which was where the landlady did all the cooking in the bar for the guests who were coming to stay. So it's all open, there's a lot of information, a lot of objects there, including a chimney crane, which you'd need to help lift the very heavy pots of cooking things. You've got a salamander, which is like a a little um, griddle to put, it's on a very long handle, to put in your fireplace. You might put a muffin on there to cook. You've got toasting forks, and you've also got a spit. Something to cook your Tudor chicken if you want to. Um, And as someone pointed out, we've also got a very large, slightly rocket-looking turkey roasting screen, which would go in front of your fire and stop the spits. Did they grow their own beer on the premises? Or did it no, not no. on the premises. That's a really good question. They did have some linked local breweries. Yeah, there was, and must have been loads. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there was 11 pubs just mm. on Castle mm. Hill alone. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 11. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and this area was quite well known as a slum area. So mm. with all those pubs yeah. and a, a few major churches as well mm. to try and stop people going the wrong way, yeah. um, people did know that Castle Hill was actually a bit of a dodgy area in Cambridge. Mm. So yeah. it all starts to come together in your head as a slightly yes. strange yeah. part of the yeah. town. So we did have quite a few interesting characters coming into the pub and the landlord and landlady were extremely well known. In fact, Lil Carter, who was one of our landladies in the Victorian era, was famous for her Cambridge pies. We're going to go into a little room called the Snug, and it really is quite snug. The reason it's called the Snug is because a partition wall was put up in the 19th century to separate some of the more riffraffy customers from the well-to-do. So if you were staying here at the inn and you wanted a a more secluded, cosy room to chat in, or perhaps meet another guest, you could go to the Snug. So we're going to shuffle over there, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the domestic objects we've got in the Snug. Final family to live in the pub used to use this as their private parlour and obviously give it to anyone who is more of a a wealthy, well thought of patron of their pub if they wanted that secluded space to have a chat in. What we have in here now is some of our teacups and we have a beautiful little fireplace and above our little fireplace too close together is a belt and that silver belt was given to the long distance running champion of the world Charles oh. Rowell who came from Chesterton oh. Oh. so we have this beautiful silver belt which was given to Charles Rowell and his descendants gave it to the museum some time ago 
but now that's just over the fireplace. Now, unfortunately, it's in a box, so I can't get that one out, and it is locked because it's quite an expensive item. But what I do have in here that we can have a feel of is some domestic cleaning equipment. Oh, because they would have had to do an awful lot of cleaning in this pub. Now, if any of you know anything about hoovers and oh, vacuum yes. cleaners, <laughs> what you'll know is that before any sort of vacuum cleaner, people would have to have very small rugs in their house that they could take out and give a good beating. And they would use the item I've got in my hand, which is a knotted rug beater. Oh. Carpet beater. I'm going to pass it round. Fantastic. It's a really nice Did you think of something so yeah. functional? Well, actually, it's got real beauty. Mm. It has. Gosh, and it didn't break. It, it didn't break when you beat, mm. you know, when people used to beat the, the rugs. Absolutely. So it's very strong, isn't And it? people preferred this yeah. because they knew their dust wouldn't come back into their house yeah, straight yeah, away. Yeah. Whereas the early hoovers oh, actually gosh. didn't do a very good job. Yeah. So they could just take it's it amazing. out. amazing. So one of the reasons that carpet wasn't popular for such a long time, well into the 1920s and 30s, is because people preferred to take small rugs outside and if they had servants, to beat them for them. <laughs> However, some of the early vacuum cleaners really did create a very small vacuum and a very small amount of suck. And the one I've got in my hand that I'll pass around is called a star vacuum cleaner and it's essentially a long tin can with a bellow that you just move up and down with your right hand as you hold it with your left hand and it creates a very tiny oh, suction just about here. <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant. Isn't it great, though? Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously, you know, they were getting the idea of it. Well, that's yeah. Oh, that's the bellows. Oh, yeah. It's like a balloon pump, <laughs> isn't it? There's something quite poetic about it, isn't there? You could do some lovely singing to it as you worked. Yeah. So all the, all the stuff goes up into here, does it? Into exactly. It? You're just pumping away, creating that vacuum. It doesn't do anything. But you've tried. So, Warren, what were your thoughts on that particular touch tour? I guess it matched my interests more than previous touch tours I've been on and in that sense I probably enjoyed it a bit more than before. I thought it was very well led by the person who was going around with us. She guided us through in a very methodical way and explained all the exhibits very well to us. I quite liked it. There were little things where they tried to recreate maybe the sort of smells you'd get in certain rooms. I remember there was one bit where you could smell all different spices and scents that might come from, I think, uh, 17th century sort of kitchen area. And uh, I quite liked that, that was a bit different. And another favourite area of mine was up in the loft, they had all these early sort of 20th century, sort of late 19th century kids' toys. And I quite enjoyed playing with them, that was quite fun. I was in my element a little bit there. It definitely makes a real difference. I mean, I've been to places before with family and stuff and tried to look at things and the people at the museum or wherever have been like, oh, she can't touch that, she can't touch that. No one else is allowed to, so she can't. And my parents have got quite stressed with the people there because they're like, oh, she can't see, and they try to explain. And sometimes people make it really inaccessible and it makes the experience not work, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think touch tools make a real difference. Sometimes it's about people making decisions about what they'll allow us to have access to. When I hear people on TV or radio saying, oh, well, we have to preserve these so that everybody can enjoy them, and I feel a bit miffed sometimes because there are so many things that I can't enjoy because 
it's decided that actually they're far too valuable to touch, if you see what I mean. Mm. I mean, I've done a few things before theatre, and I suppose I found that helps me remember certain things about plays. There was one called Grief by Mike Lee, and on the touch tour they were saying that there were very subtle changes in the set and they explained how you know in one thing there was all these bright flowers and then the next set they'd all died and things like that so through the touch tour those subtleties of the change in the set were explained and then recently I went to the duck house which is about the expenses scandal and one of the things on the stage that stuck out there was this big wicker sort of laundry basket slash trunk that was full of receipts <laughs> and it was all about all the receipts that this MP had um, accumulated and of course we got to touch the actual duck house as well so yeah. that was great thrill. Yeah. I think I started um, having touch tours at theatre when I was doing um, AS theatre studies and we went on a couple of um, audio described showings and we went on touch tours as well and when you have to write about something about the set and costumes um, it makes a lot of difference when you can actually touch them rather than having people just mm. describing them to me. I don't think I would have been able to write about it if I hadn't have had the touch tool. So it makes a real difference. I had this experience nearly a year ago that we decided to go off to London and we went to Madame to Swords and when I got to the door and they said, oh, you can touch anything you like. And I'd never been anywhere in my whole life. And they just said, touch anything you want to. And that was a, it was just really, wow. <laughs> what did you choose to touch first? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who was first. I, I'm going to be judged now by the people that I touch. <laughs> I think David Beckham was one. <laughs> I was going to say, you're trying to find the handsome celebrity. Robbie, Robbie yeah. Williams was another one. <laughs> and then there was Princess Diana, and as I think... I felt when I touched Princess Diana, I thought that a bolt of lightning would hit me and the security would floor me, but it never happened. I can't believe that. <laughs> That's unbelievable. What's unbelievable? That you're allowed to touch everything. That's just I know. amazing. I, think, I know. I think yeah. that anyone can touch anything there. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I went, I never when I was that. a very small child, I went, I was seven or eight, and everything was roped off. So, I mean, I could get some sense then because I could see a bit, but this was just incredible, really, you know. Because I was with my two teenage kids and a friend of theirs, you know, they were sort of whizzing through it. So mm. I selected the people that I thought would be interesting, really. Mm. And um, oh, Madonna was another one because I wanted to see what they dressed Madonna in. What, <laughs> yeah, right, okay. um, what was she dressed in? Was she dressed in the sort of Vogue costume or was it...? Um, yeah, some sort of standy-outy skirt, I think, from okay. what I remember. <laughs> My daughter, who's 13 then, I said, oh, who did you touch? And she said, oh, well, Rihanna and Gandhi. And I <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a mixture. That's a super well, group. Yeah. Well, those are, no, actually, those are the people she taken photos of, and I thought, mm. that's, that's a sort of quite diverse range of people. Mm. Margaret Thatcher was another one because I decided I was going to have this picture of me mm. wagging my finger at Margaret Thatcher and then the next month <laughs> or so she died. They've got <laughs> Professor Stephen Hawking in there as well now because I was sort of thinking what disabled people they've mm. got in there and I think that he was a notable Did he have a wax wheelchair? That was one of the galleries we sort of whizzed through mm. really. So I didn't. Yeah, they didn't uh, 
No. Well, I've sort of met him in the flesh, really. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. I think some of the best ones I've been to definitely have been before theatre performances because the people who are showing you things are so enthusiastic about their production. They try and make a real effort to show you as much of the costumes as possible. And I went to see The Lion King and spent quite a while talking to a makeup artist which I wouldn't have thought I would. Mm. Um, I'm trying to remember what she showed me. Quite a lot of the masks that are used. So I think they're quite good. The other thing actually about pre-theatre performance tours is that you get an experience that most people don't get, I suppose. Mm. Going up onto the stage and <laughs> handling the set and doing all those things. You know, most people don't get yeah. the opportunity to do that. Um, Sometimes people who have vision are a bit jealous, aren't they? I was going to say, I think yeah, a lot of people would enjoy get this. Up yeah. on the stage and <laughs> Just finding out the workings and the mechanics of the theatre was yeah, better yeah, than that. Yeah. Also, I went to the Victoria and Albert Museum um, in London with some family and a couple of friends. Well, we went to see a specific exhibition initially, which was about the um, costumes of the pop group, the Supremes. Oh, cool. Which was, yeah, that was quite good. But um, there wasn't a lot that I was allowed to look at. But the girl who was showing me around, she showed me quite a lot of other things from the museum. So if I hadn't have been with her, I probably wouldn't have seen anything else. So that was quite good. And she made a real effort. And I think it was the first time she'd ever done anything like that as well. The method that's quite often used for touch tours is to go around a museum in a small group of people which is what we did with the Museum of Cambridge. You can't just wander into places on a touch tour and just start touching things. They are organised in a quite structured fashion. Unlike Madame Tussauds, you don't usually turn up somewhere mm. and be given the opportunity to touch what you like. So it is important, I think, how whoever's leading a touch tour presents ideas. They might hold an item themselves and speak about it for a bit. Generally, that seems to be what happens on the ones that I've been on. If this person is talking for 10 minutes, it gets a bit boring. <laughs> you want, you want, what you actually want to know is some ideas about what they're holding, how they're holding it. I am holding this item in two hands because it weighs, you know, a hundred pounds or whatever. It might be a, a starting point, and then to describe, you know, the shape of it, relating it to common ideas, I suppose, on size and things. One way of doing that is to talk about it in hand size and arm's length and. Mm and things like that, so you know, this thing is twice as long as my arm or this thing is about as long as my middle finger or something like that. Just to give ideas, I suppose, on size of things. Colour's an interesting thing to, for, for, for maybe uh, someone who's leading a group to try and discuss, because for some people that will have some relevance and for other people mm -hmm. it might not have any relevance. So whether to include it or not is it is an interesting to topic because some people may have enough sight to make out a little bit of colour, maybe, or contrast, and some people may have some idea of what colours are. Colour hasn't really been discussed in too many touch tours I've been to, maybe because they think 
is the concept worth mm-hmm. discussing but I think sometimes it maybe is just for those who may benefit from knowing the colour of something. For some reason I always, well not always but I generally ask what colour things are. Mm. I don't really know why because I've never been able to see which is kind of a bit weird but anyway. With coming from a sighted family they've related everything to colour so I've kind of got used to it. Mm. I mean, I don't always remember what colour things are. <laughs> and then if I've yeah, lost I something... I have this problem as well. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people will say, like, if I've lost a coat or lost something, and they'll say, what's colours? Do you associate anything with different colours? Uh, only because that's what I've heard. Mm. I remember one time we were having lunch and someone asked uh, if I wanted red or brown sauce. Now, brown sauce has always been called brown sauce, but red sauce has never been called red sauce. <laughs> it's always been tomato sauce and ketchup. Mm. And I knew what brown sauce meant, mm. but I couldn't picture red sauce. And I was thinking, Aunty Joan, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I hadn't made the association yeah. of tomatoes being red. I was just like, mm. what? What's red sauce? I don't think I want brown sauce, but what's red sauce? <laughs> yeah. And then people confuse the issue by growing yellow tomatoes. Don't <laughs> 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 go there. <laughs> what are they doing? Growing red sprouts now and yeah. things like that, aren't they? Yeah. So, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it is important, I think, you know, how things are described. So if you're a touch toward leading person, it can be difficult for that person to put themselves in the position of every single type of visual impairment mm. and provide a, you know, a, a suited description for that. So I think there are some kind of common elements that you, you need to include, maybe, you know, size, where the item is in relationship to the speaker, the person who's talking about it. You know, whether they're standing in front of it looking at it or it's behind them and they're looking out and telling us about it or height. I can't think of a specific (laughs) example, but sometimes people have described things to me and I've gone to look at it and it's completely different to what I the picture that I've portrayed in my head. And I'm thinking, how how did you get that description from that? They kind of relate it to something that they can see. Yeah. And that and doesn't you, make any sense. To no, me. because you've never no. seen it. So. Yeah, exactly. So that's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to describe things, I guess. You know, even if if you are trying to describe something and you are visually impaired, it is actually quite describing hard. it to someone else is it's a a tough skill to acquire. I would say yeah, to be able to do it. I've had audio guides before, yeah, I, I think I quite like those, because when you've got a tactile tour, quite often it's aimed at a certain exhibit, whereas with the audio guides it's usually a number keypad, you can go around a bit more freely and go to a whole range of different exhibits in, mm. in a museum. I guess in that sense it's a bit more difficult to go around independently, because you need someone to be able to match the numbers up to the keypad. I've often found with the audio guides, and uh, used a few now, that the descriptions are quite often not very helpful because they're not really targeted at people who are visually impaired. They're targeted at the general museum goer. So they might start describing something. Because most people who are attending the museum will 
know what this thing looks like before they get there. The description is couched in that way, as if you know what it, it's like. And so it's often not how this thing looks, but the history surrounding it. And that's something that's valid, of course, and interesting, but it's not a description of the item. I know what you mean, because I went to Windsor Castle last summer, and uh, in a way it was quite good, because there was quite a simple device anyway. It was, you know, buttons that you could press when you got to the next bit of it and so on. But as you say, it got into certain things, and it said, oh, this, you know, there's a four-poster bed, and it's made of whatever material, and I thought... I've got no idea what that, you know, is that like silk, is that like satin, is that like velvet, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, it, 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 yeah, just... and even the four poster bed, unless you've come across one and felt one, you know, the full grand type of four poster bed, you really have to touch it to get a real sense of what yeah. it's like, don't you really? Do any of you find uh, tactile diagrams helpful? Uh, mm. <laughs> Like me, that's why the sounds of things fit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Um, when I was at school, because obviously I've never been able to see, so um, even when I went to mainstream school, they made a real effort to make certain diagrams with um, different textures. Mm. So they were quite helpful because you were able to distinguish things more clearly. Mm. But um, and then when I had to do my GCSEs, I had to, um, especially maths and science. See, that's a lot of graphs and things, and some of the diagrams that they were used, they were monotone ones, was so unclear. And I think they had to um, make some alterations to it, they had to make the line more raised. Yeah, mm. um, so that was it, put me under a heck of a lot more pressure um, to complete the exam because obviously I had to wait for them to uh, readjust the diagram, so I, I had to. Well, the yeah, exam basically took all day. It's just an extra thing, isn't it? To, yeah. So it depends on mm. how clear they are, really, and whether they have made any distinction between. Yeah. But, but I think there's a real art to making a yeah. tactile diagram. Yeah. Because yeah. if you just translate the printed version of a, a diagram Absolutely. directly to mm. a tactile representation, mm. it can be so detailed that you cannot really make tactile sense of it. No. And it's often better to simplify a diagram and try and represent ideas slightly differently. It's not absolutely essential that you stick to the same scale or proportions as the printed version because it's a lot harder to sort of identify very small differences by touch than it is by looking at them. I mean, it's because you, you can't dig down mm. into the real detail mm. of, of mm. lines over lines and things yeah, like that. Yeah, one line can feel much the same as another, mm. I guess. Yeah. The other thing I used to find really, really confusing when I was a child was um, a side view of a picture. Yeah. So they'd show me this picture of like a table and it would appear to have only two legs or yes, one leg or something. Yeah. And I'd be like, since when does a table or like a car have only two wheels? Yeah, That's yeah. quite mm. strange. Yeah. So they'd only show like the two wheels on one side of the car. Yeah. And I'd be like, what? 
why is that car only got two wheels? And they're like, it's a side I'm like, no, 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 that's wrong. I'm sorry, but that's wrong. It's meant to have four wheels. So that, that really used to drive me crazy when I was younger. Yeah, it's very difficult to get those kind of concepts of, yeah, because they're very visual. Very. Yeah. Yeah. My experience of tactile tactile maps is only quite recent, I guess. But I had one made for me when I started uni. It was a tactile map of the campus. It's quite a small campus, but it was mainly square blocks that represented buildings and braille of buildings' names, but bearing any relation from that tactile map to the actual reality of walking around the campus was quite difficult to bear any relation from the map to real life. A question on that, Brian, because you're someone who had vision up until fairly recently. Mm. Do you think that you would have used a printed map of a, a campus like that to familiarise yourself with it as, a, um, as a, a person with vision? If it was one of those maps, say, in the, somewhere in the campus with a little arrow saying you are you here. You are here, maps. Yeah, 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 I'd probably, probably use that. a quick look at it and look at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe just get my bearings in the first few days. But mm. yeah, if, if I was fully sighted, I'd imagine it would be quite easy. I guess once my sight did go, I soon found out that just asking people was probably the best method to <laughs> find your way around places. Yeah. I, I guess I probably wouldn't have used a map that I would carry around for me. So that is it for the ninth edition of Eyeballs. Thanks for joining us on our return episode. Should you wish to contact us, you can do so via email, podcast at campsite.org.uk. Campsite is spelt C-A-M-S-I-G-H-T. You can check out our website at www.campsite.org.uk dot org dot uk forward slash category forward slash podcast where you can listen to previous episodes and access the links to information included in this episode thank you for listening and goodbye for now